As we begin this morning, I'd like to read a, a couple of verses out of Psalm 61. Psalm of David, which we're told is to be, is to be sung with a stringed instrument. I'll just read it. <laughs> Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Psalm 61, 1-4. Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving that you are our shelter, that you are the one whose arms are under us to sustain us. Uh, with your wings, you, you, you carry us through. With your power, you maintain your church and you push forth the kingdom of God and you defeat the powers of darkness. We're grateful, our Father, that you have revealed to us the truth and you have given us hearts to, to be in submission to you, knowing that to submit to you is to receive glory and power and, and strength and all those things that are needed in this life and in the next. Father, we know that whatever you accomplish through our lives is not done by our strength, but by your strength through us. And we give you the honor and the praise. And Father, I ask that you will bless us here this morning, that you will speak to each of our hearts. You know us intimately far better than we know ourselves. And whatever is true from the passages that we'll study this morning will speak to us individually and Father, as we so often uh, read in James, that we will not just be hearers of your word, but doers, people who put your word into practice. Jesus said to us, if you love me, you will do what I say. And Father, so I pray that we will be obedient people. And we're so grateful uh, for this time of the year in which we honor the birth of your son here into the world to become God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, and Father, I pray that we will not be uh, overwhelmed by the glitter and the commercialism, but in the midst of it all, we will keep the focus on the one who was born in, in a stable to a peasant family so long ago. And yet he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, master of the universe. And we're so grateful that you have chosen us to be your children. So Lord, may we honor you throughout this uh, Christmas time and as we go into the new year. Thank you for your presence here this morning amongst us. In Christ's name, amen. We've been looking at Absalom's attempted coup to overthrow his father, David, in the 17th chapter of 2 Samuel. And we noticed already that David rather, I should say, Absalom rather easily and quickly captured the city of Jerusalem. And then with, with the... With the conquest of the city almost falling into his lap. He was, what do I do now? So he turns to his counselor Ahithophel, who had been David's counselor, but had turned traitor and switched to Absalom. And he said, what shall I do next? And Ahithophel said, well, in order to consolidate your power here, to guarantee the throne to you, what you need to do is put together a large military force this very day. And tonight, let me lead it down and overwhelm David's camp by the Jordan River, kill David, and then all of the men will have nobody to rally around and they will have no choice. They will have no choice but to submit to you, Absalom. 
Well, Absalom thought that was pretty good advice, but he had a bit of a doubt in his mind, so he thought, I better ask Hushai, who was the other senior counselor that was there. Now, Hushai, you may remember, was called the friend of David. And David had told him, you go and, and you tell Absalom that you will serve him as his counselor. And then, of course, you will be, a, you will be the mole in, in, in the council there. Uh, you'll be the one who will let the information come out so I'll know what's going on. And you will also counsel Absalom in the ways that would be best for the overthrow of his coup. Absalom didn't know any of those things, of course, so he asked Hushai, and, and Hushai said, well, this time Ahithophel's counsel is not good. And so he argued for a, a more profound way. Rather than putting together a force real quickly and rushing down there and trying to overwhelm David, he said, you know, David will be expecting you, so what you better do is consolidate your power from Dan to Beersheba, which are the typical, typical um, north and southern extremes of the uh, kingdom, and uh, with this overwhelming force that you have put together with great certainty, you will then be able to crush the power of David, and there will be no question about it. But Hushai wasn't exactly sure that uh, Absalom would follow his advice. And so Hushai, you remember, activated the spy ring that David had established in Jerusalem, and he got the message out to David, say, telling David, Ahithophel has given this counsel. There, there might be attack tonight, so you better get your army over to the other side of the Jordan River uh, where it will be safe and you will not be in an exposed camp there tonight. So here's Jerusalem here, and David and his men had gone down probably through the oasis at Jericho uh, over to the Jordan. And so what they have done now is cross into the east side the Transjordanian area, which goes in this, in this region here, goes by the general name of Gilead. That's kind of a general name applied to this area in which there were at least three different tribes that occupied that region in that general area. And so David got his army over on, onto the east side of the Jordan. Now the Jordan is not a very large river, but it is a barrier. You don't just walk across it in most places. There are places where it can be forded, but depending what time of the year we're talking about when this all transpires. So David has done this, and uh, this has at least preserved him in case Ahithophel did attempt to, uh, that is, Absalom allowed Ahithophel's plan to go into action. So let's read at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17, uh, verse 24. Then David came to Manaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan, and he and his men, and, and all the men of Israel with him. And Absalom set Amasa over the army in the place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ithra the Israelite, who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom camped in the land of Gilead. Now when David had come to Maanim, Shobai of the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the sons of Ammon, from Gilead. I, I always think of Gilead as you, if you were looking at Gilead from this side over to the other side. It almost looks like kind of a dome. In fact, they call it the Dome of Gilead. It's kind of shaped like this. If you saw it in broad perspective, and the jabot kind of cuts right down to the middle like a part in the hair, you know, <laughs> like somebody who parts a hair right down the middle. Kind of there's the jabot, and here's the domes going out on both sides there. And so the Jabbok River runs down through here. And, and joins the Jordan right about there. Now, it's, it's not a massive river, but it, it does flow most of the year, depending on you know, if you've got a drought or not. It's, uh, it's larger than most of the little creeks, creeks that, that flow into the Jordan that are wadis most of the year, meaning dry, because of insufficient rainfall to, to keep them 
flowing all year round. But the Jabbok runs pretty common. And Mayonnaise is up, right about up in here, pretty close to where the K is on the word Jabbok, somewhere up in there, about 15 miles up from the confluence of the two rivers. So what we have here is David taking his, his entourage across. Now, how many people were with him? We don't know. We know that all of his bodyguard and all of his mighty men and all of these individuals were with him, plus families and other members of the royal court who didn't want to stay behind and be under Absalom's thumb. So I, I've estimated there were probably at least a thousand warriors, plus probably a few thousand other hangers-on. And, and that may be an understatement. But whatever the case was, he got across, and now he had, David had to lead his men all the way up here to the Jabbok, then up the Jabbok, up here to Mayanam. Now, Mayanam was far enough away, and it was a fortified city, that it would provide at least some sanctuary for the moment. It isn't going to last forever, because remember, Hushai had uh, announced to Absalom that if you put this big army together, that even if David is holed up, you can put a rope around the city and just drag the city until it falls into rubble, which, of course, is a... Uh, extreme statement. Obviously, nobody's going to be able to do that. But the idea is that David would be easily um, captured. So after they crossed the river, which they did at night, they probably camped on the east side. And then the following day or days, he led his entourage the 30-mile trip up to Mayanim. And since they had to go up the gorge of the Jabbok, probably up the gorge of the Jabbok, it was not exactly an easy trick, trek. So, you know, we're, we're probably talking about two to three days at least to make the journey up to Mayanam. Now, in the second chapter of this book, we saw that Mayanam had served as the headquarters for Saul's son Ishbosheth and his supporters when they rebelled against David's rule or they sought to take power after um, Saul had died. And so we remember the city of Mayanam from that particular account. But Mayanam is more, more popular or better known for an earlier account, which actually gives the name of, of the city. And that was the time when Jacob, about 800 years before, Jacob was passing through the area and he was going to meet Esau. And so he sent his wives and his herds and everything and all his people ahead and he stayed behind. And there he spent a whole night wrestling, the scripture says, with the angel of the Lord. And, and so he called this place Mayanam, which means two camps, the camp of the Lord and the camp of Jacob. And, and so the name has or was, was still kept, at least in the scripture, up to the time of which we are speaking here. In the meantime, Absalom has sent word throughout the land from Dan in the north. Dan is, is way up here at the far end of the land, uh, to Beersheba in the south, and, and not specifically. I mean, they're, they're, they didn't stop at Beersheba because at this time, uh, David had established an empire. And everything inside the uh, red lines here, the solid red lines here, uh, were, was directly under David's control at this time. He had conquered all of these surrounding nations. And so, you know, you have Dan up here and, and Beersheba down here, so there was a lot more territory beyond that under David's control. But Dan to Beersheba is the common phrase used, like in America we'd say, from the left coast to the right coast, or, or I should say from the left coast to the wrong coast, um, <laughs> from the Atlantic to the Pacific, that kind of an idea here. 
from Dan to Beersheba. So he's collected people, men, warriors, or people who want to be warriors, and put together an army of how many thousand? We don't know. All we know is that in the battle, 20,000 are slain of his army. So his army was probably a whole lot larger than 20,000, 40,000, 50,000. We don't know how big his army was, but he gathered this army together as Hushai had counseled him to do, and he led them across the Jordan. Now, where did he cross the Jordan? Well, the indicators are, the assumptions are, that since he gathered them from Dan to Beersheba, that they probably collected somewhere in the middle here, and that they probably crossed the river north of the Jabbok because they knew that David was at Manaim. So David is up here. So the indicators are they crossed the river somewhere up here into Gilead. The scripture says in the uh, 26th verse of this chapter that Absalom crossed into Gilead. So he's over here in, on the east side of the, of the Jordan River, probably right up in, in this area, right up in here. That's where Absalom has, has brought his um, army. Now, in this particular passage, we discover that he has to choose a new military commander because Joab has gone with, his fa uh, with, uh, with Absalom's father, yes, David, and stayed with him. Joab is committed. No matter how, 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 how much of a character Joab was, he was loyal to David. In fact, sometimes he was so loyal to David that he would do things David didn't even want him to do because he thought that would be better for David, as we'll see and have seen already. And so what happens is Absalom has to choose a new military commander. And, and he chooses another member of the family. He chooses Amasa. And we discover that Amasa was David's nephew, just as Joab was. Joab was the daughter of Zeruiah, brother, a sister of David. And Amasa is the son of Abigail, who is the sister of David. Not Abigail's, David's wife but David's sister, Abigail. Now what we have in this passage is interesting. Uh, we're given Amasa's father's name. He's called Ithra the Israelite. Very, very interesting. Ithra the Israelite. Aren't they all Israelites? Why is this guy singled out as Ithra the Israelite? Well, it seems that if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, he's called Jether the Ishmaelite. And so I think from this that the most common assumption is that he's stressed as, it, by, by the way, Ithra and Jether basically have the same roots. So it's just a, a little bit different rendition of anything. So I call the guy Robert or Bob, you know, kind of idea. And uh, I, I think what we have here is the fact that he was an Ishmaelite. But he, through circumcision and through commitment and conversion to the cause of Israel, he has now become an Israelite. And... So he's now specifically named as an Israelite, which you wouldn't norm normally do. Now, some have indicated that because it says that he went into Abigail, that there might have been uh, a rape or, or some kind of an illicit affair here, but there, there's nothing to indicate other than somebody's interpretation of that particular passage that that would necessarily be so. So anyway, Amasa, cousin of Joab, cousin of Absalom, so it's a real family affair here. Uh, he has become the commander of Absalom's forces. Now, Maonim was not a large city. It was a walled city, but it wasn't a very large city. And so there wasn't enough food to feed David and his entourage and the people that were gathering to him there at Maonim. 
And so how is he going to feed all of these people? Well, you and I know from our understanding of the New Testament that if we're following the Lord and if we have chosen to walk with him, the scripture tells us that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now, that passage didn't exist, obviously. Christ Jesus hadn't been born yet. But the principle, I think, David already understood. David had put his faith in God. And so the God who makes that promise to us is the same God who promised to David to meet his every need and to keep him as king over Israel. So God moved upon three men, I think totally unknown to each other. I mean, they probably knew of each other, but they didn't know that God had moved each one individually to supply David's needs. And so we have specifically three individuals named here. First, we have Shobai. And we're told that his father was Nahash. Nahash was the former king of Ammon. Ammon and his capital was Rabbah. And we know from an earlier passage that David made the statement that at one time Nahash had shown kindness to him when he was fleeing from Saul, probably because Saul was the enemy of Nahash, and if David was the enemy of Saul, then Nahash would be the friend of David. And so the scripture is silent on that. It doesn't tell us about that event, except through David himself saying, he was, he was kind to me at one point. And so is Shobai now simply taking over from his father and showing kindness to David? Maybe. But we have another issue here, and, and that is that Ammon is a part of the Davidic Empire. Rabbah, the capital, was captured by Joab. In fact, we know the story very well because that's when David was up on the roof of his palace instead of going and helping Joab, looking down and, and you know, coming across Bathsheba. So that becomes kind of riveted in, in our minds. Uh, Rabbah was captured. And so Ammon was a part of the Davidic Empire. So it could very well be that, that Shobi is simply being a loyal vassal here. This is my Lord, this is my suzerain, this is the one who is over me. Therefore, I better serve him at this point uh, in time because Absalom may not succeed. And if Absalom does not succeed and I haven't helped my Lord in his hour of need, I could be out of a job, you know. And so, for, for whatever reason, Shobai comes and brings some of the goodies which are listed in that uh, passage there. Secondly, we have Machir. Machir we've also run across before in uh, the ninth chapter of this book. Uh, he was the person who had given shelter to, to uh, Mephibosheth, remember? Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the crippled son of Jonathan. He was, it had taken refuge in the house of Machir. And so I think what we've got here is the fact that David brought Mephibosheth from the house of Machir and installed him in the royal palace and put him at the royal table and honored him and gave him the lands of his father. And so Machir thought, hey, the king is being generous and kind to this man that I had been generous and kind to, so I will be loyal to David. And so he comes down from Lodabar, which is way up in the north, probably isn't even shown on this map because it wasn't much of a place. It would have been somewhere up, up here in northern Gilead. Lodabar means no pasture. So obviously it was a pretty dry place apparently. And he came from there with some goodies as well. And then we have the third individual, Barzillai. Name means man of iron. Like <coughs> Stalin. You know, Stalin was the man of steel. 
wealthy, powerful man, a Gileadite who was fiercely loyal to David, and we will run into him again. In the 19th chapter, in fact, we will discover he was 80 years old, and yet he was very, very uh, committed to David. And he comes from the town of Rogelum, or Rogelum, actually, I guess is the way the uh, emphasis should be. It's also about 30 miles north, but a little bit further over to the east. And <laughs> Rogelum means, uh, apparently means treaders, people who worked as fullers in the uh, garment industry, uh, who helped to put the filling in, in cloth so it would be less flimsy. So it was probably a, a spring kind of operation there. So these three individuals come. Now, when you read the list of what they brought, you know they didn't just come with a sack on their backs. I mean, we're talking about thousands of people that need to be provided for. And so we see beds and basins and pottery. Can you imagine pottery? Wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seed, honey, curds, sheep, cheese, all these goodies being brought to supply the men of David. And you can imagine the people of Manaim were saying, oh, thank God, you know, our stores are running totally dry here. Unbeknownst, I believe, to one another, these three men brought these great quantities of what, again, are typical Mediterranean-type foods, as well as utensils and sleeping mats and so forth, to provide for David's followers. God moved these men to be very generous and to, at the same time, stick their necks out. Because, you see, Absalom has put together a very large force, a force that was much larger than David's force. That's the implication of the, of the scripture here. And so the natural thought would be that with this huge force, Absalom will probably ultimately win. And if Absalom wins and you've been caught supplying the enemy, could be pretty tough for these three men. But they decided they're going to take the chance, I guess you could say. They're going to commit themselves into the hands of God. We don't know their personal relationship with God. But we have to believe that some of these people really knew the Lord. It wasn't just David all by himself here and a few priests. And so these individuals, in spite of the danger, understood the truth that Solomon would later write in Proverbs chapter 11, where we read these words, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. Jesus, a thousand years later, would tell us in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And so they're operating according to divine principles, I believe under the energizing of the spirit of the living God, even though it's not spelled out for us here. And I think that they were acting in accordance with a very interesting passage that we read in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. In Isaiah 58, we read beginning at verse 7 these words. Isaiah 58, 7. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light will break out like the dawn. Your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. 
Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, Here am I. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, and if you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins and you will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Shobai, Machir, and Barzillai were three individuals who fulfilled that passage. Sure, David may have been the king and his followers may have been princes, but in effect they were the people in need at that hour and they reached out to meet that need. But of course on David's side of the whole spectrum, even though he had been and still was in that effect a, a powerful and a wealthy king and emperor in effect, uh, he was used to supplying his own needs as well as those of others. Being the one to bless rather than being the receiver of the blessing, but he was willing to accept the help that was sent by these three men. You could say, well, what other choice did he have? Well, maybe he didn't have any other choice, but there are people who are too proud to accept help even in their hour of need. But David was not such a man. Why did, David, why, why did God allow David to go through these trials and tribulations? You know, in our society, we have this whole idea that you work, you work hard, and you earn your retirement, and then you kick back, and you go fishing, and you get your RV, and you drive all over the United States, and you just, you just have a really, really good time, no problems, no trials. You know, your grandkids all take care of themselves, your kids are raised, no problems. In utopia, maybe, but not in the real world. And so God allows David to go through a trial late in his life because David was an emperor. He had an empire that stretched from Syria clear down into the deserts towards Egypt. He could have easily become extremely proud. He could have stood on the roof of his palace uh, like um, Nebuchadnezzar would later do and, and say, is this not a great empire which I have built? Well, we, we hardly think of David in those terms, but you know, all people can be tempted to pride. That's probably one of the greatest temptations we all face. And so God allowed these trials to come to his life to keep him humble, to remind him that no matter how prosperous he may be, he still needed to depend on the Lord. God allows all, all of us to go through these trials. Sometimes you think, got it made. I've got all my ducks in a row. I've got good health. All my investments are in good shape. I didn't invest in Enron. And so everything is great. But God allows trials to come into our lives as well to strengthen our faith in Him, to strengthen our dependence upon Him, to renew our humility. Have you ever noticed how often our humility needs to be renewed? How quickly it, it's, it's easy for us to start taking credit for things, good things that happen, when really the credit goes to God alone. Because the scripture says, every good and perfect gift comes not from you, not from me, not from the church, but down from the Father of lights, 
with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Chris? In the long run, didn't you know, Absalom being eliminated and stuff clear the way for Solomon's transition? Oh, absolutely. I was just looking at the long term and, and God's economy being able to see the long term. Those potential problems were really <laughs> eliminated, so by the time Solomon got ready to take over the kingdom, there were there wasn't anybody else right. that had a that, you know had a real anchoring to Right. And and that's a good point because Bathsheba's entrance into this whole thing was later. And David already had multiple wives and he already had several sons, and so clearing the way was was pretty important if Solomon was actually going to have a legitimate claim to the throne. And and there would be one more problem though between Absalom and Solomon, and that's Adonijah, but that he will be taken care of too in the process, as we'll see when we get there. Good point. Another thing that we get through trials and tribulation is compassion for others who are going through trials and tribulations, right? How easy it is for us to walk up to somebody who's going through trouble and, and hit them on the head and say, why don't you just look at this and stop being depressed, you know, and stop this and stop that because it says right here, rather than walking with them in their shoes and uh, being people of compassion, which is what God calls us to do. We have to remind ourselves in the midst of all of this, I believe, that although we look at David as a biblical saint, we think, oh, David, the man who played his, his lyre and sung psalms and wrote half of the book of psalms and, and this great man of God, oh, he had a glitch or two along the way, but he was a great saint, you know, man after God's own heart. And to not realize that David couldn't see the future any more than you or I could see the future. He had no more assurance of tomorrow than you or I have assurance of tomorrow. Uh, just because he walked as a man of faith doesn't mean that he knew it was coming down the line and so he could just kick back and say, no problem. And so even with these generous gifts, there was no certainty that he was going to retain his throne. No certainty that Absalom would be defeated. All he knew is that God was meeting his need of that hour. And isn't it interesting how God does that? God lights your path with a little candle. One little step ahead, you can see that step, but five steps down the road, mm-mm. Because if we can see five, 10, 50 steps down the road, who needs faith? We walk by sight. Scripture says we walk by faith and not by sight. So God doesn't reveal the future to us. Maybe he, not, he may not even reveal our to us from now. Well, we hope we'll all be in church, if you, unless you've already been there and then you know where else you're going, but that's the way God wants us to operate, by faith, day by day, and literally hour by hour. And David never faltered in his faith. Oh, he faltered in his obedience from time to time, but he continued to be a man of faith, and he believed in the power of God, and he believed in the promises of God. And as a result, God rewarded that faith. And certainly, I think David remembered the words which God threw him or I should say, had him pen. It's, it's a well-known psalm, Psalm 34. Let's just read a few verses from that psalm. Psalm we frequently turn to, I think. Uh, let me just read uh, verses 8 to 10. This very fitting toward, for his situation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For, those, for to those who fear him, there is no want. 
The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Now, of course, we have to understand God is the definer of good. I might say, Lord, I'm in need of a good thing. And that is a new Mercedes-Benz. <laughs> and he might say, your little tire is sufficient unto you. <laughs> you don't need a new Mercedes-Benz. So he, he does meet our true needs and, and grants those things that are necessary in our lives. And sometimes he even gives us something that we ask for that maybe isn't a great need at the moment, but it's something we really like to have. You know, let's at least get into the 18th chapter. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zer Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, You should not go out. For if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore now it is better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and thousands. And the king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and a slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. It's one of those bad forests. Well, l let me just uh, point out a, a couple of things here. This is a civil war. This is a true civil war. Because not only do you have all of the contestants in the battle, are they from the same nation, but the two leading contenders are father and son. And the commanders of the two enemy armies are cousins, first cousins. So we're talking about a real family feud here that is nationwide. Absalom was collecting men from all over Israel to form this army of 40,000, whatever the number is, to fight on his behalf. But while that is happening, people are gathering to David. People have heard that David is at Manaim that David has been chased out, that this, this young Turk has taken over in Jerusalem. And so they're gathering. I think many Gileadites, you know, three and a half tribes lived on this side of Israel. And, and so they're gathering to him there at Manaim. And we find David organizes his men. This isn't going to be just a rabble running out and fighting like a, like, like a bunch of whirling dervishes out here. These men were broken up into regiments let's say, hundreds, and battalions, let's say, thousands. And, and a trusted officer is put over each group. Uh, I think these trusted officers were from David's mighty men. 
And some of these men in Dave, under David's command that were loyal to him were very, very strong men because we discover later on in other passages that some of them actually slew giants single-handedly, like David did. And, and then he divides the whole army into three major, let's call them divisions. I don't think they were fully manned divisions, as our modern army is supposed to have, theoretically, 15,000 men in a division, uh, which is, I guess, fairly rare. But I don't think they were <clears throat> anything that they were that numerous. But nevertheless, they were obviously in the thousands. And, and he put Joab over one-third of the army, put Abishai, Joab's brother, under another, over another third, and then he put Ittai, this, this Johnny-come-lately, but a person that David had put great faith in, the Gittite from Gath, probably a Philistine, in command over another third, a converted Philistine, by the way, a man loyal to David and I think to the God of David. And then, of course, I believe Joab still retained overall command because we discovered the attack is coordinated. It's not like you hit now and you hit later and you hit some other time. It was like a coordinated attack and Joab is the one who calls it all off when it's over, so, and he sends the messenger back. So Joab has overall command, but, but the army has uh, three separate uh, commanders over three separate divisions that will be used in the attack. And, and David, of course, offered to provide overall command himself, but his men said, no way, David. You're not going to do this. You're not going to go. And the reasons given were, first of all, if we win this and you die, what's the point? It, it, you know, the whole thing is lost, even if we win, if you are killed. Secondly, if we are defeated, but you are saved, you're there to rally the troops at a later day. And there still is hope for victory in the long run. Plus, if you stay here in Mayanim with some of the reserves, and, and the battle starts going badly for us, you can bring the reserves in at the right moment, just as Napoleon failed to do at Waterloo, which would have probably given him the victory had he done that. And, or if we're you know, about to overwhelm the enemy, but we need a little bit more force, you can provide the coup de grace. You might think David said, Whew, boy, I'm glad they didn't want me to go. I didn't want to go out there and get bloodied. That's not David. <laughs> David was a warrior. David wanted to go. David wanted to be with his men, but David, yielded to their wisdom. This is another example of a truly godly man. He will listen to wise advice and not think he has all the answers. Even though he's king, he's emperor. He can see their wisdom and he agrees to abide by the desires of his men. And so he stays behind, but he tells Joab, Abishai and Ittai, since I'm not going to be there, I want you guys to be sure you don't hurt Absalom. You might as well be talking to the wall, as far as Joab is concerned, because Joab knows what's best, and he's going to do it regardless of what David wants. And probably that's what needed to happen, really, when you think about it, because Absalom had done the ultimate, rebelled against his father with a desire to kill him. You know, did he deserve to live and have mercy from his father? Probably not. And so he wouldn't, as we will see. Well, we'll uh, pick up with the actual Battle of the Forest of Ephraim. We don't know exactly where the Forest of Ephraim was. Where it ought to be and where it was may not be exactly uh, the same thing. So we'll uh, talk about that. But at least we know it had trees in which somebody could get hung up by the hair, right? So we'll talk about that.